Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome everyone to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, and I want to welcome you to part one of a two-part series on legislative and regulatory updates for winter 2021. As an FYI, this podcast was previously recorded as a webinar, and we are pulling helpful excerpts for our podcast audience. Welcome, Marilyn. Thanks, Dorothy. It's a pleasure being here with you today, and I'm looking forward to this program on legislative and regulatory updates for 2021. Well, we really appreciate your being here. Let's start with the basics. Tell us a little bit about what the future may hold uh, for us on the legislative and regulatory front. (laughs) Yes, I'm very happy to give a little introduction on that. Although, quite frankly, a lot of it's kind of up in the air. So the big news, of course, is what's happened in Washington, D.C., and we have a new administration. And as you're probably very aware, there were a whole slew of regulatory and a couple of legislative developments affecting healthcare, specifically with regard to the ACA, that came out over the course of the last four years. And with regard to the regulatory development um, developments, a lot of those were the Trump administration responding to regulations that were issued in the Obama administration, or they were efforts by the Trump administration to open up the marketplaces and make more coverage options available to employers. The two issues that I see with regard to the regulatory front will be how many of the regulations that were passed in the last four years will stay in place or will they be uh, thrown out, will they be tweaked, um, or will they be retained, and will there be more regulations coming out. Just as a little note, for example, um, it was announced today that the Biden administration is considering opening up the individual federal marketplace so um, that people who don't have coverage uh, but might need coverage in the pandemic might have more time to sign up for coverage because in the federal marketplaces, the annual open enrollment period, I believe, has already expired. In California and Cover California, it's still going on. But those are the kinds of things we might be looking at. We could also, uh, with the change in the Senate, be looking at some legislative tweaks to the Affordable Care Act. There were some various issues that um, uh, the parties were interested in um, making changes to the ACA, updating it, reforming it, and so forth. But because of um, some uh, uh, political issues, we couldn't always get, the, the parties couldn't always get that legislation passed. So they might start looking at that afresh. I wanted to make just one final comment about the uh, ACA in the Supreme Court. Um, The uh, Affordable Care Act was challenged before the Supreme Court in a case, California versus Texas, that was heard. I believe it was November 10. It was a week after the um, election. Um, Those who are in the know about Supreme Court oral arguments and decisions and, and those who spend a lot of time prognosticating about what direction the Supreme Court is going in seemed to think that the court was not inclined to throw out the entire Affordable Care Act, although it could throw out the individual coverage mandate, which has now been reduced to zero anyway. Um, 
but we don't yet have the written opinion on that and we'll have to wait a couple of more weeks before we get that. And the final point I want to make on what the future may hold is keep an eye on what's going on in Sacramento as well as um, your local municipality. Um, last year, because of the abbreviated legislative session, as well as the fact that the legislature was very focused on COVID-19, the legislature passed very few bills last year in comparison to what they usually do. They passed some momentous legislation, but they didn't pass a large number of bills. Um, that could very well change this year. Uh, so it's worthwhile to keep an eye out on what's going on in Sacramento, as well as um, the uh, federal government as well as municipalities. Municipalities have been jumping on the regulatory bandwagon these days. Um, they've been passing lots of laws with regard to minimum wage, sick leave, and COVID-19. So employers need to stay alert on all three levels. Yeah, there's nothing much going on at all. So <laughs> so, so we're going to start with a COVID-19 update because I've been getting a lot of questions on this. And uh, um, there's so, there's so much going on. It's it's kind of ridiculous. So let's start first by the federal government. Marilyn, do you want to talk a little bit about this and kick this off? Yeah. So um, there are sort of three main laws that we have to concern ourselves with, with regard to the federal government's implementation of relief and requirements with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. And the first two were passed last spring, uh, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the FFCRA, and the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, the CARES Act. And one of the reasons I wanted to mention that is some of the provisions of those two laws have already expired, some will be expiring, and some will carry on into the future. So we're going to talk about um, sort of the fate of the various provisions that the FFCRA and the CARES Act um, uh, what their fate is, where, the, where they stand right now. In addition to that, over the course of the last year, as you're well aware, the agencies that regulate um, these employee benefit plans and the workplace have been issuing lots of rules and notices and FAQs and technical releases. So we'll kind of give you an update of where we stand. And then the big news, um, in a sense, was the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2021, which we've been referring to as the CAA, this is the 5,000 plus page bill. It's a big one. That, it's a big one. It's a big one. I, someone told me, I haven't confirmed this. Someone told me it's the largest bill ever passed. Just to give you a sense, it was over 5,000 pages. The Affordable Care Act was 1,000 pages. So there's a lot in it. And Dorothy and I are going to uh, <laughs> talk about some of the key provisions regarding health and welfare plans. There is so much in this bill. There is also a provision, I am told, that requires the Department of Defense to provide a report to Congress on UFOs. Yeah, I saw that. That's actually yeah. <laughs> skimming through that. I heard something so about very that. Thorough. Yeah, I actually <laughs> saw that on the internet and had to kind of scan through the law and just see. And by the way, we are only talking about the basics on that right now because we only have bill text right now. There's no, uh, obviously, there have been no regulations released on that. So it's kind of hard in the beginning because we don't have, we have the what, but we don't have the how <laughs> until that's the rules. A, uh, until the that's rules an excellent way to put that. Exactly. Yeah, right. And then there are a few bills from California, one of which, AB 1867, has already expired. But um, we'll talk about various bills in California and efforts by the California legislature to address the pandemic. Okay. So 
yeah, there's okay. there's a lot. There's a lot going on. Okay, so let's first talk about the COVID-19 deadlines. And this is pre-CAA. So uh, I'm going to let uh, Marilyn talk in just a moment. But I just want to mention that paid leave under FFCRA did expire on December 31st, as well as the paid leave under AB 1867, which was the basically the FFCRA California version for groups over, over 500. Um, the mandate to provide COVID testing without cost sharing runs through April 21st, public health emergency, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and let Marilyn take over here, and then we'll just kind of continue this. Marilyn, go ahead. Sure. And one little interesting distinction between the paid leave provisions under the FFCRA and the paid leave provisions under AB 1867. The paid leave provisions under FFCRA had a hard stop on December 31, 2020. So if you were in the midst of a paid leave um, on December 31, 2020, your rights ended, uh, your right to paid leave ended on that day. It didn't extend on even if your leave did. In contrast, under California law, if you were in the midst of a paid leave on December 31, 2020, uh, you could continue on with those paid leave benefits into 2021. Uh, since those only lasted for about two weeks and we're now toward the end of January, um, those have now run out, but that was a slight distinction. Um, the mandate to provide COVID testing without cost sharing, this is the obligation of plans to provide COVID testing without a deductible, a copay, um, uh, or a um, deductible, um, and that has recently been extended. We'll talk about that. What about the clause that said employers could continue to pay until 331-2021? That's yeah. a very good question. Yeah, that has to do with the new the new law that just came out as well. So they gave you options to extend if you want to on your own behalf, you know, on your, on your own decision. So we'll talk more about that. Go ahead, Marilyn, sorry. That's okay. So timeframe extensions. So um, many of you are aware that um, the Department of Labor and the Department of Treasury issued a, uh, some, uh, a rule stating that certain provisions or certain um, timeframes that apply to the administration of health and welfare benefit plans um, are told. They're basically disregarded during the pandemic. Um, and they define this period during which they're disregarded as the outbreak period. The outbreak period started on March 1, and it ends 60 days after the announced end of the president's national emergency. The announced end of the president's national emergency is not the same as the HHS public health emergency to which the mandate to provide COVID testing without cost sharing applies. Yeah, they, they don't want to make it difficult at all. I know they try to keep it simple, right? So there's, there's two different deadlines. There's the public health emergency announced by HHS, which some provisions uh, are tied to, such as the COVID testing mandate. And then there are time frame extensions, which are tied to the president's national emergency. And that has to do with um, things like the COBRA, the COBRA extensions and that sort of thing. Exactly. So that has so this this will definitely affect both plant administration as well as your HR department because it has to do with special enrollment rights, how much time someone has to add a baby to the plan after the baby's born, add a new spouse to the plan after they get married, ha, uh, what how long they have to pay their COBRA benefits. Right now during this outbreak period, 
your employees don't have to pay their COBRA premiums um, and they won't have to pay it until the end of the 60 days after the end of the president's national emergency. And can you imagine with people being laid off and having lower income in their families right now in their households, how easy that's going to be when they have to pay back, you know, 9, 10, 12 months worth of COBRA premiums. So interesting. That's going to be the very difficult yeah, part. It's, it's yes. not when happen. it does end, they're going to have to pay right away all of it. So that's going to be very hard, if not impossible for many people. I want to talk a little bit more about the outbreak period. There's been confusion about when this period actually ends. I know there was a provision in the regulations from last spring when they first announced the outbreak period. And as you know, I did a detailed article on it and so forth. But there's been very little mention of this particular provision. And it's really important, especially now. So could you tell us about the statutory duration limit in ERISA that defines when this outbreak period could end? I'm happy to. And I agree with you that there has been a little confusion about this. And there's also been very little talk about this. It's an interesting issue. So the outbreak period is tied to the uh, president's declaration of a national emergency. And that began last year on March 1. Um, but they have never announced an end to the president's national emergency. However, when you look at the regulations that were put into effect to create the outbreak period, they stated that the duration of the outbreak period would be subject to a one-year limitation that's contained in Section 518 of ERISA. Um, if that being the case, it, based on a strict reading of the regulations, the outbreak period should end on February 28, 2021. However, events are changing rapidly these days in Washington, so keep your eye out for further developments and further announcements from the government as to whether or not this period might be extended. Okay, so basically, as it stands now, it's February 28th, unless the government steps in and gives us another date. That's correct, although it's very interesting that there's been very little discussion on this because that deadline is right around the corner and it will make a difference in the administration of COBRA benefits, special enrollment periods, and the claims processing for major medical plans as well as health FSAs. So it's interesting that there's been as little chatter about this um, as there has been uh, because it is a very important deadline. Um, particularly with regard to the administration of COBRA benefits, to some degree with regard to the administration of special enrollment rights, but also with regard to claims processing for both major medical plans and uh, health FSAs and health reimbursement arrangements. I do think it's worthwhile to keep your eye out for future developments and announcements from Washington to see if there might be any change in the way the uh, deadline for the outbreak period is applied and interpreted. Okay, so we'll do that, and I'll be, I'm sure, in touch with you <laughs> throughout the next month or so to see exactly what uh, what you've heard and see we can compare notes. How does that sound? <laughs> that sounds like a plan. Yeah, yeah, I, I was surprised too because I have seen very little. I haven't seen anything on this. Um, there's been nothing in the media. There's been, yeah, usually there's a lot of, as you said, chatter, and I haven't heard any. So anyway, thank you for that clarification. I appreciate it. I just wanted to remind you all, I talked about the timeframe extensions um, because this will impact plan administration, already has impacted your plan administration. I just wanted to remind you of the eight categories of extensions that are subject to that rule. Um, the first one is HIPAA special enrollment, that's marriage, birth, adoption, placement for adoption. 
number two is the 60-day COBRA election period. Number three is the time limit for making COBRA premium payments. Number four is the time limit when an employee has to notify you they've experienced a COBRA qualifying event. Um, but I also wanted to highlight number five. That is the deadline for someone to file a benefit claim. And the reason I think that's worthwhile to mention is this, it gives employees additional time to submit a benefit under either your major medical plan, your dental plan, your vision plan, as well as your health flexible spending account, or if you have a health reimbursement arrangement. And keep that in mind as we get down to the provisions in CAA about carryovers and grace periods, because employees will now have additional time until after the outbreak period ends to submit um, claims incurred under uh, in the 2020 calendar year under their health FSA. So you might not know what their end of the year balance is yet because they could be sitting on some of those claims. The other categories have to do with appeals. I won't burden you with <laughs> the additional details on that. Another change that the IRS announced was they gave employers the option of allowing employees to make mid-year cafeteria plan election changes during the 2020 calendar year. Obviously, we're beyond that, but I wanted to remind you that that particular provision has expired. However, you are obligated to um, update your written cafeteria plan if you did adopt that change, and you have to do that by the end of this calendar year. But I'm also going to talk about the fact that there's some uh, new provisions with regard to mid-year election changes in the CAA. Another change that the IRS announced this year is with regard to health FSA carryovers. Um, for a number of years now, the amount that an employee could be allowed to carry over from one year to the next was um, capped at $500. This year, the IRS announced an increase to $550. Um, you will probably have to adopt a cafeteria plan amendment um, if you want to implement that. But again, there are some new developments along that line with regard to CAA. Another change that was created by the CARES Act is it allowed employers to set up an educational assistance program under Section 127 of the Internal Revenue Code to reimburse their employees' qualified student loan debt. However, the CARES provision expired at the end of 2020, but CAA has extended that. The last point I wanted to mention had to do with telehealth. The CARES Act also included a provision relating to telehealth. If any of you have a high deductible health plan, you will know that you can't pay for benefits under the plan below the high deductible limit without um, causing an employee to lose HSA eligibility. The one exception to that has always been with regard to preventive care. Well, uh, the CARES Act made a, an addition to that, and it said if you receive telehealth benefits and they are paid below the deductible, whether those telehealth benefits are for um, COVID-19 or anything else, you will not lose HSA eligibility. That provision expires or is only available for plan years beginning on or before December 31, 2021. A couple of other things, and I've started to get some questions about uh, W-2s. Um, so a couple of things that I wanted to mention is um, 
those of you who were subject to the two paid leave provisions under the family's first law need to know that to the extent you paid out any qualifying wages under the family's first law, you also have to um, report that in the employee's W-2 in box 14. So make sure your payroll provider or your payroll department is aware of that. Also, the IRS has recently updated its FAQs explaining how the tax credit works. So um, if you had any questions or concerns about whether or not you were calculating the tax credit correctly, they have updated their guidance. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, CAA developments on the tax credit. I also wanted to mention another addition from the CARES Act, which has been popular, um, but it is optional is that you can, if you have a health FSA or a health reimbursement arrangement or your employees have a health uh, savings account, you can get reimbursement for over-the-counter drugs and medicines used for medical care as well as menstrual products, even though they don't have a prescription for them. If you are an employer and you want to implement this, check with your TPA to make certain they can administer it and they don't have any rules and regulations surrounding how it is processed. Um, you may need to amend your cafeteria plan document as well. Okay, let's move on to the next topic. <laughs> COVID-19 testing, treatment, and vaccines. I'm getting all kinds of questions on this, uh, especially since the end of the year. They, people didn't know whether they were supposed to continue uh, this, whether their employees still had coverage uh, beyond December 31st and so forth. I have sent out a few emails and so forth, but uh, let's kind of get into this a little bit. Marilyn, you want to go ahead and start on this, and I'll just be your color commentator. Sure, perfect. So obviously this is top of the uh, top of mind for all of us here in the United States and around the world. Um, COVID-19 vaccines, are they covered? Well, back when they passed the CARES Act last spring, they anticipated that we would get a vaccine. And so they addressed the issue of coverage. Under, section, uh, under a section of the CARES Act, non-grandfathered group and individual health plans must cover a vaccine with no cost sharing 15 business days after the vaccine is recommended as preventive care. Where this comes from is those of you who have non-grandfathered health plans will know that the Affordable Care Act said that preventive services covered without cost sharing. That's why you get your flu shot without cost sharing, your mammogram, and so forth and so on. However, um, the usual process for that is that the, there's a couple of government agencies that recommend a new vaccine or a new treatment or a new test as a preventive care service. Once they recommend it, it takes a year before plans are required to cover those new preventive care services without cost sharing. What the CARES Act did was it sped up the process for the COVID-19 vaccine. And it said, you have to cover these without um, cost sharing 15 business days after they're recommended as preventive care. Uh -huh. And because they've tied it to this preventive care mandate, that's why non-grandfathered group health plans have to do this. Grandfathered plans do not. Um, they can, they can voluntarily agree to do this, but they are not obligated to. 
And I want to. I just want to bring that up again once because I do have some uh, some self-funded clients and and also a couple of uh, fully insured clients that are grandfathered. And so we'll get more into this. But if you were grandfathered last year when we talked about this in the spring, uh, those of you that were self-funded could make your own decisions. We actually asked you at that point. You probably remember whether you wanted to cover that. With uh, we kind of went through the difference between what you had to cover and what you didn't have to cover as a grandfathered health plan. So anyway, go ahead, Marilyn. That's no, that's great. And um, another thing that came out, they came out with some regulations a couple of months ago. They've come out with so many regulations. I've gone through more toner cartridges than I care to count. Me, you, um, and, me, you and me both. <laughs> the transparency regulations that Dorothy's going to talk to took up a whole toner cartridge in and of themselves. Um, two, but they two. Also... <laughs> For me, it took two toner cartridges, just so you know. Okay. So with regard to vaccines, the regulations stated that this non, no cost sharing requirement will apply during HHS's public health emergency, the one that runs through April 21, whether the employee goes to an in-network or an out-of-network provider. It also must cover multiple doses. So if you're getting one of the vaccine with two doses, as well as the cost of administering the vaccine. So if they tack on an office visit charge. What do the plans have to reimburse uh, the provider at? They call it a reasonable rate. There's some more details um, in the regulations on how you set all that up. Um, so bottom line is for employers, don't forget to review all the re uh, related guidance that's being issued as to um, uh, vaccines in the workplace, OSHA, EEOC, and state guidance, and so forth. Yeah, so Cal, Cal OSHA. Cal OSHA had some really good uh, information that they put out uh, on this. And if you, I, I sent it out to everybody, and the uh, Maryland informed me about it in September, I believe it was, and I sent it out to everyone. It was it was very very helpful. They had a really great guide on that and kind of walked you through everything through Cal OSHA. The EEOC also about a month, month and a half ago, updated their FAQs um, right. to add some additional guidance on vaccines in the workplace. Right. Okay, let's talk about the uh, COVID-19 testing and treatment. Um, let's talk about the FFCRA and the CARES Act. During the HHS public health emergency, group and individual health plans, fully insured and self-funded, including grandfathered plans, have to cover testing, not treatment, but testing for the detection or diagnosis of COVID-19 and related items and services for in-person visits, telehealth, urgent care, emergency room, and so forth, uh, to the extent that it was related to the testing. So, Marilyn, I'm going to let you talk talk about the some of the particulars with this. Yeah, so if someone goes into, let's say, an urgent care facility and they get um, and they need a COVID-19 test, uh, the cost of the test as well as the cost of the uh, urgent care visit must be covered without cost sharing. Now, if they have something completely unrelated while they're there, if they get their foot x-rayed or something like that, that is not part of this. Um, use this regular terms and conditions of the health plan would apply. Um, the tests that are covered include at-home testing, multiple tests if they're medically necessary, antibody tests, but what is not covered are tests required for employment purposes. So if someone doesn't need a test, <clears throat> their doctor hasn't ordered the test, but you're requiring them to have a test before they can return to the workplace, that it doesn't have to be covered by the health plan without cost sharing. And a little reminder for anyone who might have a high deductible health plan, the IRS issued a notice last summer, which still should be in effect, that states that if um, an employee receives uh, testing for COVID-19 
or treatment for COVID-19, so it's broader than the uh, testing coverage mandate, if they receive testing or treatment and it's paid for below the deductible, they will not lose HSA eligibility. Okay, well, you guys probably know this already, but uh, in case you haven't heard on the news, it's, it's been kind of announced everywhere. The public health emergency, which was scheduled, it, it's been pushed push back 90 days several times, and it was supposed to end this last time on January 20th. Um, so it was extended from January, to, actually it starts again on 20, the 21st of January, and it goes another 90 days. Now keep in mind, these are 90 actual days, so if you have 31 days in a month or 28 days in a month, the reality is you're supposed to count the actual days, not necessarily the calendar months. So I just want to be a, want you to all be aware of that. It has been extended, so you know, you go January, February, March, <laughs> you know, just count, count the months. I actually, this morning, just to double check this, there are online date calculators. Oh, they are? Okay. There are. All you have to do is Google it. And I typed in January 21 and added 90 days, and it came up to April April 21. April 21. Okay. I was going to ask you, is it April 20th or April 21st? (laughs) So I hadn't actually checked. So yeah, we have to always check those things because they don't say three calendar months. They say 90 actual days. It's always difficult with 31 days and 28 day uh, months. So now I'm going to turn it over again to Marilyn to talk about the new stimulus bill that we talked a little bit about at the beginning, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2020, which we're going to refer to as CAA, and how it impacts uh, other laws and regulations. This is the big one. This is the 5,000-page piece of legislation that I'm going to let Marilyn talk about, quite honestly, because I'd rather her do it than me. But uh, we've both been trying to go through this, and it's and it's um, it's it's not an easy thing to go over. But keep in mind, as we said before, this is just the what we need to do. This is not the how we need to do it, because we don't know that yet. So, Marilyn? Yes, and I and I'm with Dorothy. I'm um, anxiously uh, awaiting some of the. Um, I'm hoping that the Department of Labor and the IRS will come out with some additional guidance. They were very good about that when um, the Families First and the CARES Act came out. So I'm hoping they'll come out with some additional guidance to explain the hows of some of these, because you know uh, the statute is the statutory changes created by the law are very bare bones, and of course once you sit down and try to figure out how to actually implement it, it gets a little trickier. So, um, but we do know quite a a number of things. So, uh, and this first item we're gonna talk about responds to the question we already got, which is a very good question. And it has to do with the two paid leave provisions in the family's first law. And as we said, those expired as of 12-31-20. So at this point, employees no longer have a right to paid leave and employers no longer have an obligation to provide it. However, under the CAA, if the employers voluntarily agree to provide paid leave um, under the provisions uh, identical to that of the family's first law, they can continue to receive a tax credit through March 31, 2021 for the amount they pay out in paid leave benefit. Basically, though, you have to, if you are going to voluntarily do this, and you're not obligated as an employer to do it, but in order to get the tax cut, you have to um, offer the paid leave under the same terms and conditions as you would if you were mandated to provide paid leave. So that means if someone used up all their paid leave time under Families First last year, uh, you can't give them new leave time this year and expect to get a tax credit for it. As you'll recall, under the Families First, there were maximums daily and total maximums uh, amounts that would be paid out in benefits. If you exceed those amounts, those maximums, you can't get a tax credit for that. 
I just want to throw out uh, one comment on this, and that is, I think it's it's well and good. I think that's you know this is what the law says, and you can do that. But from I have to look at this from a CFO perspective. Um, if <laughs> a lot of clients right now, a lot of employers right now are are hurting seriously from 2020 from COVID and the impact that it had financially. So do not feel like you absolutely have to do this. If you can't afford it, you can't afford it. This is a you can do it if you want to. Um, you don't have to. So. Uh, I'm not going to recommend one thing or the other for you guys. That's a totally financial decision as far as you guys are concerned, whether you, if you have the option to offer that. Um, I know if I were sitting in a position where I were the CFO and it was my company that went through a terrible, terrible financial year in 2020, I would have to probably make the decision that I just simply can't afford to have. These extensions sound great on paper, but the reality is some, com- uh, some companies are not going to be able to afford to do this. So I just don't want you to feel like you're obligated to offer this, um, even though you can't. Yes, you'll get a tax credit, but you still have to pay for that time off first. So I just want to throw that out there as a personal, uh, as a personal comment. I should add that um, whether or not these, uh, the mandatory paid leave provisions will be extended um, anew was one of the things they were talking about in January that uh, might show up in a new stimulus bill that the Democrats might offer up. So um, we don't know if that's going to happen or not. It didn't make it into the 5,000 page bill, but it is something to watch for. So I just wanted to tie up these two, these, the paid leave provisions as a reminder, where do employers stand? Again, families first ended on December 31, although you have the right to continue on voluntarily and still get a tax credit through the end of March. The California paid leave provisions also ended on December 31, except for those people who were currently on a paid leave provision. The California paid leave provisions applied to employers who are not subject to families first, such as employers with 500 or more employees. So what happens if you're not subject to families first anymore, you're not subject to AB 1867, an employee needs to take time off because they come down with COVID-19. Just a reminder, you have to go through your checklist of all the various leave laws or Uh, leave policies that you might have, sick leave policies, and so forth to find out whether or not the person has any time available to them. Um, For example, if you're large enough to be subject to FMLA or CIFRA, and the person is, um, has a serious health condition because they themselves have come down with COVID-19, they could qualify potentially for unpaid leave under FMLA or CIFRA, or if they have to care for a family member who's come down with it. Um, Don't forget about the various wage replacement laws, such as um, uh, state disability insurance the employee might be eligible to apply for, or uh, paid family leave. Uh, Or there's also a new provision under the new Cal OSHA regs, which under certain circumstances requires an employer to keep uh, pay and benefits going for a period of time. We'll talk about that later on. It never ends. It just doesn't. It doesn't. This is, uh, there's a big chunk of the CAA that relates to cafeteria plan changes. Um, And all of these provisions that I'm going to talk about are all optional. You as an employer do not have to implement them, but you can implement them. You can do it this year. You can do it next year. uh, You can set the terms and parameters within the strictures set by the law. So um, again, it's all optional. Will we get additional guidance? I hope so. Um, There are some questions that I have and other practitioners have, but um, we do know quite a bit and I can answer some general questions about this. 
Here's some action items for you. If you do decide to adopt any of these cafeteria plan changes I'm going to talk about, you have to record that decision in a written cafeteria plan amendment. And um, you have to do it by uh, the end of the first calendar year beginning after the end of the plan year in which the plan change takes effect. That's a mouthful. Basically, if your plan year takes, a, if your change takes effect during the 2021 plan year, you have to adopt the written plan amendment by the end of 2022. In the interim, you need to operate the plan in accordance with the change. And one question I've gotten by, from a couple of employers is, yes, you do have to communicate the change to participants. So uh, yeah. you have to let them know yeah. that you've done it. So what are some of the changes that they're allowing you to implement? Uh, first of all, um, with regard to carryovers. So this is a change of from the uh, standard use it or lose it uh, forfeiture rules that apply to health FSAs and DCAPs. Normally, if you don't use up all your funds um, at the end of the plan year, you forfeit them. And for all of these examples, by the way, let's assume a cafeteria, a calendar year cafeteria plan, January 1 to December 31 to make it easy. What this new provision says is that for both health FSAs and DCAPs, employees uh, or participants can carry over all unused funds from the 2020 plan year to the 2021 plan year and from the 2021 plan year to the 2022 plan year. Now, the existing law but for CAA is that DCAPs can't have any carryover and health FSAs can have a carryover, but of no more than $550. So that's now been changed for the next two years. And if you as an employer want to, you can allow your employees to carry over all used funds from say the 2020 plan year into the 2021 plan year. And we believe that if you do so, they should still be able to contribute the maximum the maximum amount they're allowed under the statutory rules. We'd love them to confirm that little detail in guidance, but we assume that that's what they're intending. Another change is, has to do with a grace period. A grace period um, is a period of time under existing rules that lasts two and a half months and no longer than that. And it's after the end of the, it, you tack it on to the end of the plan year. And for that two and a half month period, people can incur claims during the grace period and have them paid with the prior plan year's uh, contributions. So let's say uh, if your plan has a two and a half month grace period and on February 1, you incur a claim, you can have that claim paid with uh, 2020 contributions. What they've said for under the CAA is the employer can, if the employer wants, to have a grace period that extends not just two and a half months, but for 12 months, the entire length of the plan year. And that applies to both health FSAs and DCAPs. A couple of little de uh, details to keep in mind. A health FSA can have a carryover or a grace period, but cannot have both. And you also need to keep in mind that carryovers and grace periods can impact HSA eligibility in the following year. So if you have a high deductible health plan and you want to encourage people to migrate over to the high deductible health plan, having a carryover or a grace period potentially could discourage them, but there are some plan design workarounds that you can implement. So, but you need to be aware of that twist.
Some more cafeteria plan changes. The first one has to do with only health FSAs, not DCAPs. And this occurs when an employee terminates employment in the middle of the year. So you've got a calendar year cafeteria plan. And let's say on August 1, the employee terminates. Um, under this provision, you can allow them uh, during the 2020 or the 2021 calendar year to continue to receive reimbursements from their health FSA uh, post-termination. So let's say the employee terminates on August 1. On August 30th, they incur a claim. They still have some funds sitting there in their health FSA uh, that was were unspent while they were employed. They can submit the claim to you after they have terminated employment and get that um, uh, expense reimbursed. Another change has to do with just DCAPs or dependent care spending account. Um, for those of you who have a DCAP, you probably know that um, there is an age limit for qualifying individuals for DCAP reimbursement purposes. Um, they have slightly altered that for a short period of time. For dependents who aged out of eligibility during the pandemic, um, during the last plan year with a regular enrollment period ending on or before January 31, 2020, plans may extend the maximum age to 14. It was previously 13. Um, and then the final item is has to do with mid-year election changes. This isn't as open-ended as the uh, mid-year election change rule that they adopted in the middle of 2020, but it does provide some relief to um, employers with health FSAs or DCAPs. If the employers want it, want to, they can allow uh, participants to prospectively change the amount of their contributions to the health FSA or DCAP mid-year, even if there is no change in status. Now, we haven't gotten any guidance on this mid-year election change rule, um, but I am assuming that employers can, with this authority in hand, if they want to consider this, they can design um, the ins and the outs and the hows and the wherefores of the mid-year election changes however they want. So for example, you would, you would probably from an administrative perspective not want to make this open-ended and say to employees, hey, you can change your uh, DCAP or health FSA election at any time during the year. You could do that. It might not be the best idea from an administrative point of view. But some employers are talking about maybe opening things up in the summer, for example, as maybe the pandemic uh, restrictions ease. All of these things have let's to hope. do with the fact that because let's of hope. the pandemic, <laughs> oh, let's hope, let's hope, let's hope. Um, I, I'd be optimistic. So let's, uh, all of these things have to do with the fact that they recognize that because of the pandemic, people weren't necessarily uh, able to use up all the funds sitting in their health FSA or their DCAP. Maybe they couldn't send their child to summer school. Um, maybe they couldn't uh, get that appointment for LASIK surgery because elective surgeries weren't being um, uh, set up. So that's what all of these changes are really about. Okay, let's talk about the student loan repayment provisions in, in the new law as well. Go ahead, Marilyn. Yeah, this is actually, uh, I like Dorothy, I've been involved in, in PIRA for many years and SHRM, and this is something that uh, we have hoped that the federal government would do for quite a while, and it took the pandemic to make it happen. Um, but this is uh, a benefit that employers can, are not obligated to, but can set up 
for their employees. We all know that a lot of uh, kids come out of college and graduate school these days with a lot of student loan debt. And in the past, employers have not been able to pay off that student loan debt um, for their employees uh, without tax consequences to the employees. The amount that would be paid off would be included in the employee's gross income and they would be um, taxed on it. An employer can set up what they call a section 127 plan or an educational assistance program to pay off tuition expenses, but not student loan debt. Well, I mentioned they made a change in that with regard under the CARES Act, but that expired at the end of 2020. Um, but the CAA has extended it again, and it now runs through 2025. So basically what this is, is if the employer wants, they can set up a section 127 plan and through this plan, they can um, reimburse up to $5,250 of the employee's student loan debt per year, and it will not be taxable income to the employee. Now, if you are interested in doing this, and some large employers, especially like in the tech industry and areas like that, have been looking into this as a possibility. Um, you, can, you have to set up a Section 127 document. By the way, you don't have to agree to reimburse all 5250 You could make it for yeah. a lesser amount. Um, and there are certain rules that you have to follow about who you have to offer it to and who it can benefit and so forth and so on. Interestingly, I was doing my um, some research in um, state legislative activity and California's legislature has introduced a bill this year, AB 116, which would make any such student loan repayment uh, programs also uh, tax deductible um, on, or uh, they, they would extend the same tax benefits on the state side as well. Yeah. So and, that would be good news. Yeah. And like, like Marilyn said, um, where, where I'm seeing a lot of the interest on this, and she mentioned it as well, um, tech companies, obviously, people that hire young kids right out of college, they want that new, you know, the new ideas, fresh ideas, and, and they want the, the tech uh, gig economy type of stuff. And, and um, also a lot of engineering companies, uh, as, or excuse me, a lot of uh, companies that hire a lot of engineers, um, I'm, I'm seeing interest in, in this as well. So just because, again, they 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 hire kids right out of college and, and sometimes they can't afford to give them as much payment as, as, you know, as much salary as they might like to recruit them. But what they'll do sometimes is put in a student loan type of uh, plan like this um, to help incentivize people to when they're trying to hire those those kids right out of college. That's that's what I've been where I've been seeing the interest. Just FYI. Any employer could set this up. Um, so long as they satisfy the rules. Um, so in theory, any, any, any employer of any size could set up one of these arrangements. So let's, let's talk about some uh, kind of wrap up the CAA stuff. Marilyn, do you want to continue um, some of this? Yeah, <laughs> we could actually do a whole hour on yeah, these provisions. Yeah, each, um, of them, each of them, I think. Each of them. The CAA, all 5,000 pages is just chock full of new developments. So here's a highlight of some of the items. None of these are taking effect except the mental health parity one immediately, um, but um, they are important for employers to know about, but we will have some time to implement them and we are expecting some regulatory guidance to come out on many of these. The first actually got a lot of publicity and that's the No Surprises Act. And this has to do with lim placing limits on balance billing. It does apply to both fully insured and self-funded plans. And basically how it's set up is um, it places a limit on out-of-network uh, emergency services so that if you go to an out-of-network um, emergency room, uh, you'll pay the in-network price. 
It places limits on um, out-of-network services at an in-network facility. This is a situation where you go into um, uh, a hospital for, um, uh, I don't know, um, some sort of uh, a hip replacement and only to discover, and you it's an in-network facility and you think you're going to pay in-network rates only to discover the anesthesiologist or the radiologist is out of network. This restricts that. Interestingly, it also places restrictions on air ambulance services, not ground ambulance, air ambulance, and that if the plan pays air ambulance in network, when someone goes out of network for air ambulance, they pay at the in network rate. Um, there's then, also I just want to I just want to throw in a comment on that because our for our self funded clients, um, this is a big deal because before it was kind of all state state uh, rules on how balance billing stuff. Uh, you know how it uh, came all came about and so forth, and whether it was allowed, and and in California uh, they exempted self-funded employers from from the the laws they here had in California. So self-funded plans were kind of left hanging out there. So this is this was supposed to address those types of issues. So I just wanted to make that comment. No, that that's a very good point. And all of this, um, it, and those are the kinds of little details that we're going to be working out in the future, like how these things relate to state law, when we get to transparency, how it relates to all the various transparency rules that are now floating around out there. I did want to mention with regard to the um, No Surprises Act, that um, there is an out clause for out-of-network service providers at in-network facilities if the patient is advised 72 hours in advance. There's some hoops that they can jump through in order to make that happen. California had a similar provision about that. The California one even had provisions about you can't, <laughs> you can't make them sign the form as they're being rolled into the operating room on a gurney. And it's surprising <laughs> how, many, how many facilities actually ask them to do that. There's some new um, ID cards requirements. There's a, a, a provision about providing an advance EOB explanation of benefits so that employees or participants can say, how much do you estimate this is going to cost me when I go in for this service? There's a mental health parity requirement, which technically went into goes into effect February 10th. Um, but it, it's a new reporting requirement, but as I understand it, um, it will only really take effect on February 10th if the agencies actually come and ask you for this data as of that time. But basically, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the mental health parity rules under federal law, what they basically require, and they actually are quite complex to implement, but the bottom line concept is you have to provide to the extent you cover mental health services and substance use disorder services, you have to provide it under the same terms and conditions as you would provide equivalent other types of medical services. So if you have prior authorization for medical services, you can have prior authorization for mental health parity, but you can't have prior authorization for mental health parity and not for other medical services. So basically it's so, treated treat as any other illness. Basically. It's it's exactly it's treated as any other illness, and so um, this can be complicated to implement. And what this new mental health parity requirement would require is if the agencies come calling, um, they are they can ask you to provide proof that your what they call non-qualitative treatment limitations um, are in fact equal across the board. There's a transparency requirement. I mentioned the advanced EOB. Um, it also requires you to keep your network status up to date, who's in your network and who isn't. 
and there are restrictions on what they call gag clauses. This is um, uh, restrictions on, you can't put provisions in contracts limiting um, the data that you can provide about or you can access about providers. There is some pharmacy benefit and cost, drug cost reporting. For example, your 50 most common or your 50 most expensive medications. And there's an agent and broker compensation disclosure requirement. This is similar to one apparently that they put in a, a while back with regard to retirement plans. It's now going to apply to health and welfare plans. And it's so that plan fiduciaries can better meet their um, obligation to ensure that the services they're being charged are reasonable. Yeah, and I have to say that um, I know that a lot of the agents are, are worried about this and, and they're kind of freaked out about it a lot. I don't at all, and I've been telling everybody at the California Association of Health Underwriters and, and National Association of Health Underwriters and so forth that this really isn't a big deal because, you know, for self-funded plans, for example, uh, we're already doing that, and for groups over 100, you're already doing that on your 5,500, at least a modified version of that. Um, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's a, a benefit for everyone to see exactly how much an agent a broker is getting paid um, because, you know, they don't expect us, I, you guys, my clients, you guys don't expect us to work free and, and most of you know what we're getting paid and, and I don't have a problem with this at all. I think it's a good thing to disclose how much compensation is, is uh, being, you know, received by a broker or agent because then people can start determining the value of that broker agent. I never think that, you know, I, I, I feel good about it because I know all the additional services that we provide for our clients. I think the people that the agents that might get a little bit upset about this are those that don't do a lot of serve extra services for their clients. Um, and you see that dollar amount come across. It might be, what? oh my gosh, how much are they getting paid? Well, most agents aren't getting paid that much, but um, sometimes that could be shocking. So I, I, I personally, I think it's a good thing. I think it's better to disclose than not disclose. I think you guys have a right to know how much anybody that uh, is working for you, basically, because we're working for you uh, as an independent, you know, um, how much we're getting paid. So I'm, 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 actually, I'm actually not opposed to this at all. I think it's a good thing. This is my own. I think in the long run, disclosure is always a good thing. No surprises. Right, exactly. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time today, but I do want to thank you, Marilyn, for sharing your thoughts with us today for part one. It's been my pleasure, Dorothy, and thank you for your time today, and thank you to everyone who's listening in. Thanks. And if our podcast audience would like to reach you, how can they do that? Well, they can either give me a call at 310-989-0993, or they can send me an email at marilyn at monahanlawoffice.com. Great. Thank you. I just want to say to everyone out there, we're going to be back next week with Marilyn again for part two. So please stay safe and stay healthy, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835. Or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.